0: Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Up. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Okay. So, we messed up and I hit the wrong button. I hit the end button. Uh, instead of the leave button. So, if you guys are able to see this, then fantastic. You you are so much better than my normal audience, which would just say screw it, he's not going to do anything and walk away. Take two. Take two. Um Mike is still wearing the outfit that he was wearing when I messed it up the first time around. We, uh, we will Except avoid... Except pants. I
1: took my pants off.
2: Yeah.
0: But you can't tell because we're on it. Yeah. Well, you had to keep yourself from sliding. <laughs> I yeah. I kept falling off. The silk underwear probably isn't helping much. Hey, we got most everybody back. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for actually watching this. I will avoid hitting the end stream button this time. And we can continue going. All right. Sweet. Okay. Okay. So, um, Mike, you were talking about a question that we were going to answer before I so rudely just killed the
1: stream for no good reason. Yeah. So um, I get this question a lot because my background as both a contractor and as a manufacturer rep, I spend a lot of time in code. And code is very nice because it doesn't care who's paying the bill, whether it's an insurance company or insurance carrier. That's ultimately going to be reimbursing for a covered loss, or if it's a retail situation where the homeowner is paying out of their pocket, the contractor is still obligated to perform the duties per. Code. Oh. Oh, per code. code. Okay. Now the question begins becomes, when doing an insurance work, at what point should a contractor specifically uh, assume that there is coverage under the policy? Now the the biggest confusion is obviously is it covered under Schedule A or do they need code upgrade coverage or all these different words that carriers like to use and throw into the mix, confusing the entire situation? Or is it ord- ordinance and law? So let me ask, let me tell you first and where I'm coming from, and then and then I'll ask you because I think what contractors typically do is go, code is law. Oh, ordinance and law includes the word law. So if it's code related, you need ordinance and law. So Remington, I'd like to ask you that question. What is, uh, if you can give an overview of minimum code compliance as compared to ordinance and law coverage within a policy?
2: I can say this is the major key to ordinance or law, which a lot of people that are starting in this industry don't understand that it's cost incurred. Once once incurred, it's paid by the carrier. And I think your question is tailored towards a contractor knowing if there's coverage i think that's something to the effect that you're asking here's my suggestion is you don't do the work until you figure that out you know although that there's you know because the insurance carriers are going to come out with some type of estimate rcv acv evaluation within that estimate they should indicate if there's ordinance or law coverage or not uh, and and how much is allocated for the ordinance of law once it's incurred? So um, to me, I, I think that's the best way to uh, you know, dip your toes in it without getting in trouble because you don't want to promise uh, a homeowner or commercial building owner that they're just going to pay their deductible and everything's going to be smooth sailing because you find out they don't have O and L. Oh, you, you're in trouble. And 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 so that, that's I just say uh be cautious but that's again the attorney side of things i know mike you probably uh, figured out different ways to not necessarily be as cautious like entering into the situation
0: yeah so that's really good advice because uh, people go into these things and they they promise way too much i've i've honestly had contractors promise that if i uh if I'm not able to overcome or make a claim, actually get paid, that they will just pay for the roof themselves. And the contractor, like, guaranteed a roof to people with my services as a public adjuster. Luckily, in all the three times that that occurred, I was able to actually win. But my God, what if I didn't? So and so, good. Have caution. I like that strategy. Now, as far as ordinance and law goes versus coverage A, there's there's a there are some differences and there are some overlaps. And that's why it's confusing because you're right. It does have the word law in it An ordinance in law, building code coverage, code upgrade coverage, law and ordinance. These are all the same thing generally, but they are slightly different from one policy to the next. So we're going to talk about very generalized things and it's different from a residential policy to a commercial policy. We're going to talk about residential. So a residential policy, very generalized. And this can be different from one state to the next. So very generalized, this is my disclaimer, ordinance and law is supposed to cover you when there is an increased cost caused by an enforcement of an ordinance or law. And what the hell does that mean exactly? So what is an increased cost? And feel free to jump in at any point in any of this, Remington, if, if you have anything to add to it or if I'm wrong. So from what I can gather, an increased cost would be Anything that is outside your normal course of construction, that's huge. That's a big deal. But there's a second caveat, or it's something that isn't currently on the roof. So if you're talking about a roof claim and it's not there, then it would be an increased cost to add it on. So you're increasing from a certain point, and that point that you're increasing from is the RCB coverage. Or if it's ACB value, you still calculate RCB first and then you depreciate it. So it still starts at RCB. So what is the replacement cost value of the roof? In a policy, replacement cost value is how much it would cost to replace with like kind and quality of what's currently there. So if there's no drip edge on the house and drip edge is required by law, then when I remove the nothing, what is like kind and quality of nothing? Nothing so there's no value to it whatsoever so there's no there's a zero replacement cost value if i install drip bed now it's not part of replacement cost value because it wasn't currently there so that's an increased cost over replacement cost value if i'm forced to do something completely outside the ordinary course of construction say i'm replacing a roof and they are requiring you to upgrade the amount of insulation in the attic at the same time in that county that is outside the normal course of construction that might require ordinance law that's an increased cost over your normal course of construction so it's either increased cost over rcv because it doesn't currently exist on the roof or it's an increased cost over rcv because they're making you do something that you normally wouldn't have to do so those are the questions is it there do you have to do it And if it's one of those two things, then generally speaking, coverage A covers it because coverage A also covers compliance with code. So that's the overlap. A lot of the ordinance and law stuff covers compliance with code or covers the increased cost. But coverage A always covers compliance and then excludes the increased cost. So there's an overlap. And that's where all that confusion occurs mm-hmm. and lots of fun yes so, so let's go
1: over a couple of scenarios and then you tell me which bucket you find it in. okay so i live in minnesota um just northwest of the twin cities we have a house that was built uh the last time it was re-roofed was prior to 2000 there was no uh ice and water shield on the house at the time so house gets uh, hailed on you've got a 1999. Let's say so. The how, the roof is now 24 years old. Uh, hail. Now, when they tear it off, obviously there's no ice and water shield on there. But clearly, for the last 12, 15 years, ice and water shield is now required. 24 inside 24 inches inside the heated wall and around all penetrations. So roof is torn off, replaced. Insurance carrier comes out and says, "What? We don't owe for it. It what because it's a code." increase there was nothing there before right now there is that's where the so we code for...
0: upgrade came from you're upgrading them to current code that wasn't there before and that's why you're installing something new it's an that's where that
1: that's where the code up pretty good now there are some that say you know how do you upgrade the code? the upgrade is the minimum so it's not like you upgrade you're sitting down at a restaurant you're upgrading to a glass of water i mean that's but you're upgrading
0: to the new current code so, so
1: the, when it was
0: built originally, it was built to code and now a new code has come out where something new is now
1: required. And now you're upgrading to that with the new roof. So the question on the table is, is it reasonable on an RCV, typical RCV homeowner policy for that cost of the leak barrier, 24 inches inside of the keyboard wall, because that is the minimum standard in the state of Minnesota. Is there, is there, is it reasonable to, assume that there is coverage within the policy for that cost. I'm gonna let you have that one, Remington.
2: I would say it's reasonably assumed. Yes. Uh, However, I think here's the key. Number one, do they have ordinance or law coverage? Check. Yes or no. Number two, there's a lot of policies that are specific that say we will uh, pay for the damages to, or excuse me, we will pay for the undamaged portion, you know, of of particular losses. Uh, In this instance, you know, there was no ice and water shield itself. I feel like you would consider it an upgrade. And the reason why I would say upgrade is because it wasn't there prior to the loss. Um, So it's an addition to what was actually at the structure at the time of the loss. I would assume, yes, it's covered.
0: Yeah, so that's the key, though. If they don't have ordinance of law, then there not, might not be coverages there. So I don't know. There are some states that require ordinance of law beyond every policy. Um, I don't know if Minnesota is one. So of those Minnesota
1: states. is the one. So Minnesota under statute 65A is required. And and I want to go to Jared's question next because I thought that was going to be an easier one than it was. So normally, you know, when, we, when we're when we doing claims in Minnesota, I mean, that's, that's typically yeah. that is a covered law. Minnesota has basically. it. Yeah.
0: It's it's required by the state, even if they don't even have it on their policy in Minnesota, they have it because it is a state statute that they have. it. So even if you don't find it and you happen to be in that state, that's the way that state works. And there are other states like that. And sometimes there is a state minimum percentage of your coverage a value for a limitation. And, and I want to get to code limitations, actually. Yeah, because you might exceed those on certain things. So some states like Florida, unless uh, it's surplus lines or they have specifically signed off on not having it, they have a 25 percent minimum requirement. States like Georgia, there's no requirement at all for any of them. Almost every policy used to have it. When I started as a PA, you could almost assume that they had a 10 percent ordinance of law on every policy. And now you can assume that they don't have it because no one is offering it to them when they get a new policy because it increases. So I want to know,
2: Mike, what yeah. is the answer?
1: Hi. Well, so,
2: but I see. He, that's the thing. Us, and, assume yeah. if, if, if there's coverage for it or not. What, what's going my, on?
1: Yeah. So, in my experience, but again, my experience is, is relegated to, to Minnesota. It absolutely is every hundred percent of the time. And as I understand it, I mean, there's a lot of different ways I can go with this. Like, right, my mind right now is going in like ten different directions. But like, yeah, yeah I mean, if 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 the if the roofing assembly. Is damaged. See, this is where I get, I think we always get into trouble because we just started, we go, oh, the shingles are damaged. No. So now, how much of the parts and pieces of that do we replace? And we start getting lost in the weeds. The fact is, this is property insurance. The property was damaged. Of the property, the roofing assembly was damaged. What does it cost for me to replace or repair the roofing assembly? Well, guess what's part of the, the assembly? It's stated in chapter nine of. of the irc very specifically the deck the roof covering the underlayments like that is that that is the roofing assembly so if the roofing assembly is damaged then you then there should be coverage under coverage a for that work the problem that comes starts getting weird is when there's you know meter mass and you, like i i always use meter mass as one so a lot yeah. of times in minnesota the power lines are coming in through the rooftop and there's city ordinances or laws that are say, no, nope, we need to bury those in, in anytime yeah. there's a re-roof. Well, now you need additional coverage. That's the ordinance and law portion of it that, okay, there's something that outside of code or uh, a minimum compliance type of a situation that now kicks in and you need to, you know, additional coverage. Chair, for. we're going to come back to your question in just a second because you as simple as
0: that question was, there's there's complexity to it as well, because you're talking about ice and water shield. If yes. we were talking about ice and water shield in the valley versus ice and water shield on the eaves, that could change our answer because underlayment was required when it was originally installed. It's probably two layers of felt in the valley was probably required. And now ice and water might be required or metal um, or two layers of felt might still be allowed. But if you don't have that, that was originally required when you installed it. If it if your roof was not up to code at the time it was installed, then they wouldn't necessarily owe for it to be to that original code because it still doesn't have the proper RCV value. You still have to replace with like kind of quality of what's there. So in case that fixed some confusion for some of you, I'll probably just be more of you confused than you were actually. I kind of confused myself even.
1: All right, so let's talk about the decking. Okay, let's talk about decking. This is the big one. This is the big one, but I think this should be the easiest one. In my estimation, this has got to be it's the easiest, one. and I and I understand. That. Okay, so, <laughs> um, so. I think some of the complexity is that, that we just we can't see the decking before unless you're you pick, put yourself in the attic, and then even then that you can see but everything. You are required to get down to the deck as part of a normal roof-related
0: job, right? In yep. order to identify if the deck is suitable
1: for new roofing materials to be installed on, yeah, that's part of the job. Okay, so let's say that you're tearing off a roof and it's got space decking, and there is what greater do you mean by space, decking? so there, so it's it's lumber decking per what okay. you know, okay, our 803.1. So you're looking at the table at our 803.1, um, which is not the same as 503.2.1.1.1. Which None is of us the,
0: actually know all the numbers. Well, you're saying. you the, could be completely wrong, the, and we're just going to let it fly. We're going to let it fly. No, this is, it's it one of the most.
1: Well, it's it's one of the most common questions that we get on uh, uh, on the code question. But so there's yeah. a table in the 500 section that you have to refer to when talking about OSB and plywood, right? And the then 803.1 is about lumber decking. So let's right. talk specifically about lumber decking. Right. Five If it's exactly a quarter of an inch gap you can still double underlayment and it still works according to the manufacturers. Because now, as soon as it exceeds a quarter of an inch, now yeah. you need a, a suitable substrate. So per, what, what is required uh, to happen at that point? So what's required to happen is that, well, code's gonna say it needs to be a suitable substrate. They don't tell you what that is. So then it It'll tell you it.
0: exactly what to do.
1: Yeah, so now it throws it over to the manufacturers who then say quarter inch minimum, which quarter inches just means that's what holds a roofing nail. So don't right. pretend like that has anything to do with fan ratings. That's just what holds a nail. So you got a quarter inch minimum, which then throws it back to 503, which is your OSB and plywood. It doesn't have to.
0: It well, just means that you'd have to take, take that piece of lumber out and put it. a
1: slightly bigger
0: one back in. Right?
1: Yeah. Right? And I that's totally what a policy do, right? pays for. It. Okay. Ooh,
0: because that's, that's like kind and of quality. So that's part of our CV. Because it's what's there now. Once you start talking about other materials that aren't
2: there, when
0: well, you're getting into the to the flooring yeah, table, whatever 503. dot
1: two dot 1. one What is parentheses it one? What is it in IPC? I don't. I don't know. i, don't okay. know I, I it's stumped <laughs> it. All right, so <laughs> I don't
0: know. So it, if you're getting IBC. into OSB or or plywood sheathing then you're adding something that's different. And there's going to be a difference in cost between that. So now you might have to have one and some covered. But if there is damage to, if it's not damage, if it's just that there's gaps because the wood shrinks over time, it's it's not that it was installed incorrectly necessarily. It just, it just has gaps now. It's not a super, super, suitable substrate. What the policy should pay for is to remove that piece of wood and put a slightly wider piece of wood in. You might have to hand cut it because these are one buys. Or remove that piece of wood and everything above it and shift everything down slightly and don't reinstall it. Detach and reset it. all All that is very expensive. Is it cheaper to replace the roof with plywood or OSB than to piecemeal, slightly wider boards all throughout the roof? That's what matters to the carriers. It's a numbers game to them. What is going to be the cheapest option? They will repair or replace whichever is cheaper. So if OSB as a replacement is the cheapest option and you show that to them and say, Hey, we could do it this way, which is, as far as I understand, it, is the way you're supposed to do it for the policy. But I've talked to the policy holder and they're completely okay with us switching over to OSB and it would only cost this much. And so you tell me what I'm supposed to do. And they'll pick the OSB if it's a cheaper option, obviously, but by giving them a choice like that, they're more likely to actually say, okay, if you say I have to replace with OSB or the whole thing, that's not how the policies work. This is going to have to be a compromise, kind of an agreement between the two of you because you're changing the materials. So what the policy pays for is to fill that gap with some wood. And then there's a minimum width requirement for lumber sheathing. So you'd have to really just go back with slightly wider
1: wood unless yep. it's already
0: six inches. Yep. Then
1: you can't go wider. Yeah. Anyway, so But at the end of the day, though, I think the important thing is you'd say we never left cover day in that discussion. We, we did not. Now, where we might
0: is when we're adding materials that weren't there. So, if you're talking about an overlay, that's stuff that wasn't there before. Yeah. So, if you're putting OSB or plywood on top of the lumber sheathing, which probably isn't the best idea because they're warped,
1: and you're also adding weight, and, you, and you're also running into the you know, the length of the nail because thickness. the nail has to go; it has to penetrate yeah. uh, an OSB or plywood. Has to go at least an inch into uh, lumber decking. If you've got two layers to go through there, what what, what length fastener are you going to use to be code compliant? So yeah. you're creating a whole other set of issues, which, you know, again, that's where I'm always, and, and you'll notice in my group, I always push this to engage the code official, ask the code official, and let them be part of it because now you're not arguing code with a with an adjuster. You're actually saying I talked code with a code official and I have a answer from or her.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the code official is, is your best friend in all these things. Hopefully they're a decent code official because they can resolve a lot of these questions. Now, if you're in a state where ordinance and law is required, getting a code official involved might be saying that we're getting a code official involved to enforce something. And then that word enforcement comes into play and they're trying to say it has to be under ordinance. law. So if you're a state that doesn't have, Ordinance law is a requirement, and the policy doesn't have it. Then talking to a code official could cause you some issues. So it's all in the way that you talk to the code official. Uh, this is what's currently on the roof. Is it okay for it to stay that way? Do I have to change it to something else? If that something else costs more, then the difference in price is what the increase cost is. If I go to plywood over lumber sheathing, and lumber sheathing costs ten dollars a square foot. And plywood costs twelve dollars a square foot. Then there's a two dollar a square foot difference. That's the increased cost that would fall under Oranson law. The ten dollars a square foot would still be covered under Cover J. So it wouldn't be the full cost of it anyway. Now here's here's where everyone gets in trouble. There's something called concurrent causation, and there's anti concurrent causation clauses. And if you have anti concurrent causation clauses tied to wear and tear or rot, and the reason that you're trying to replace the decking is because of that, then it might not be covered. And you might need ordinance and law to pick it up because ordinance and law is an additional coverage that can take the place of missing coverage in coverage A. That exclusion will only apply to coverage A, it doesn't apply to the additional coverages unless the additional coverage specifies unless otherwise excluded in this policy. And a lot of times it doesn't say that. So you probably are going to have a policy argument with that. You probably need a PA involved, but it gets complex. And to be frank, most PAs don't know how to read that properly to know how to interpret it anyway. So most of the time when you've got rot, you're going to have a big fight that probably isn't worth it
1: unless the whole roof is rotten. Yeah. But you might be able to save yourself a lot of time and effort and, and, uh, and heartache. You don't call it rot. You call it a non-suitable s- substrate because now you're staying within the, the bounds of. of it's part of the normal course of construction. More, to evaluate. Yep, so you're staying inside of code. You're using code words, using code uh, conversation with the, with the building official. And you're probably staying within coverage. A. As soon as you call it rot, now you're dealing with issues of well what you know now you've got a separate date of loss or whatever you want to call it. It just calls into a whole bunch of questions. So as soon as you start saying words like that, you're 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 going to you just increase your fight quite a bit.
0: Remington. What what's the deal with rot man?
2: <clears throat> don't say mold, don't say rot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no um, <laughs> I, you know uh, I'm with you uh, what is crazy uh, I thought about this is where I think you could use the data discovery you, you said brought is a hey, there's some policies where uh, if there is an active leak but it's hidden behind a wall it's covered like when when did that data loss occur you know yeah, uh, it's unknown anyway what's that
0: and that would be an unknowable date of loss. That would be one of those times where you're actually supposed to use a date of discovery.
2: Right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, to go off of what Mike said, I, I agree. Kind of stay away from the rod. uh, uh un- unnailable surface. Let's uh, let's keep it in that lane versus potentially yeah. So other. You. Yeah, other things that. I'll tell you
1: a quick story. Um, within the uh, uh, there was a case of a uh, court case that was just tried in the state of minnesota about this surrounding issue and it did end up being because of the uh storm damage damage got some uh a wall an interior wall damage but in order to repair that wall it needed a significant amount of rebuild to be done to be done to code now the way the case law ended up um it, it, they lost and uh, the uh the building owners lost the householder lost and that was not covered but in the case, uh, the decking also needed to be uh, brought to code. And State Farm actually acknowledged that within the final. this a final, Texas case? No, this was Minnesota. This was just tried this year. But they said, clearly, you know, there was, there was loss to the roofing assembly. The decking is part of the assembly. Clearly, we owe for the decking. So it, they paid for the redeck, but they did not pay for the rebuilding of this parapet wall inside you know that was due to there wasn't direct loss to that wall it was to the it sounds like the, a bad attorney uh if, yes. if they had made the argument <laughs> about it being a system
0: <laughs> the, yeah. the simple argument which would have had to have been brought up before it got to that point it, it was a tough loss all in get a system would probably have resolved that and, and there are a lot of cases where bad Bad verdict, and it's because the the argument wasn't made correctly. And based on the argument that was made, a judge had to make a verdict and couldn't bring in some other argument that the judge deems necessary. Yeah. So they can only use what's there. And and we're not lawyers, and we're talking about lawyer shit, and Remington's <laughs> right. all silent. Yeah. So, <laughs>
1: but uh, but I want to hear, I want everybody to hear that because every one of you is probably dealing with a State Farm case where they're denying coverage on on the decking. A redecking situation and in that case law at the Supreme Court in which they were basically a winner in that case they acknowledged inside of that that yep the decking needed to be brought to code the decking is part of the roofing assembly we owe for the decking and then I mean there, there was a complete
2: Bam. yeah there was a complete acknowledgement for that portion of the case how does case law
0: work Remington?
2: Case law works where one particular jurisdiction state, I say jurisdiction because if it's federal law, there's different circuits that uh, pay attention to law in each state. For instance, Georgia, Alabama, Florida is 11th. But um, what it works is, is that it's supposed to be binding law. Like these justices came up with this decision, whether it's at the Court of Appeals, whether it's at the Supreme Court of that particular state or jurisdiction they rule one way and all the other justices in that jurisdiction are supposed to follow that particular law. And if it's outside that state, uh, you could call it uh, persuasive law, or if it's in a, a different state where it's completely different, as in, for instance, Alabama and California, you wouldn't even call it persuasive law. You just, you know, so there's different structures, there's different layers of, of case law, but, uh, like I said, how does, a it roofer needs, use it? <laughs> how does a roofer use case law? Yeah, I I would. I mean, I'm sure there's instances out there where you could come up with a reason why. But uh, I would say stay away from uh, using case law.
0: That's that's uh, that's touchy. Even for PAs, that's kind of touchy. I, as a PA, I have sent Merlin Law blog articles about stuff. To adjusters. That way it's not my opinion. It's Merlin's opinion or something. Um, but even that's really toeing the line sometimes. So yeah, I, I
1: don't know how to use that, even though it's great. Mike. I mean, it's hard enough to get a handle on code, minimum code. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I want a lot of contractors diving into case law.
0: Right? Probably hard to deal with. Yeah. So case law is one of those things. So how, how do you keep up with case law though? What? How does anyone keep up with it?
2: Yeah, you got to keep doing searches constantly. We all have these uh, platforms that cost us a lot of money to keep up with that. So anytime there's a new change, we get a a notification and we put it in our little case law bank, so to speak. But it's, uh, you know, every, every attorney learns as they go, as they, all right, well, this is the new case law. Okay, well, here's a new statute, whatever it might be. But what usually happens is, is a statute comes out and then there's 10 years of case law to define that statute. That's what a lot of that happens. So Bob Hall said, adjusters will say the city, the city don't enforce, uh, enforce that code. So we're not paying for it. I think this goes back on what Mike said. You got to get the code enforcement out and and say they actually enforce it. Have that in writing. Um A lot of clients, I've had them do it myself. I know Matt, you have as well. And Mike, I can guarantee you have as well. Uh, You get it in writing that it is, it must be enforced. So uh, just like typically,
1: Yeah, typically it's already in writing. That's where I'm going to, the reason why I want to address this is get to know and love chapter one of the IRC. That's going to have everything that has everything to do with the enforcement and, and administration of the code. And it will say right in there where it is and is not enforced. And uh, yeah, you'll have everything you need out of there. So here's the funny
0: thing about the word enforcement. There's uh, ambiguity in insurance policy. If you didn't know that yet, oh my God, I just blew your mind. Ambiguity in policies exists. The word enforcement is one of those terms that can be construed in multiple ways. Enforcement could be construed as an action. There is a specific enforcement being done on your claim that is forcing you to do something completely outside the normal. And that's the way it was actually intended to be read. In this policy but they've construed it to be anything that the um the building official requires a permit for was going to investigate and so you got building officials that say we don't enforce that and what the building official means is something different than what the policy might mean because they're using different jargon and so for a building official to say we don't enforce the decking i don't care if you put cardboard on it the the code book clearly states that they enforce all the codes that are there the code book is using the word differently than the way the building official is using it because the building official is using common vernacular to mean that he's not going to actually go out there and do anything. He's just saying he's not a police officer. Right. He's so gonna, what does carry- it mean to have an enforcement? There are cases that I've seen in Texas where it very clearly identifies the courts have identified that a specific enforcement was never imposed on that particular address, meaning an action meaning they have put an enforcement on this address to replace all the electrical components because there was electrical mass involved and it has to be under the ground. Now it is outside the normal course of roofing construction. It is something that is not normal and it's being enforced on that thing for whatever reason that is an enforcement as an action. And that's the way it's supposed to be intended, but worst case scenario, if they're going to say that it has to be something that is related to um, a building code official actually investigating The word enforcement can be construed as anything that would have a looming threat of punishment. If you could get in trouble for doing it wrong as a contractor down the road, even if they don't enforce it right now, the way that they're using that word. If later on the homeowner tries to sell the house and they have an investigation, an inspection, and the inspector says that they didn't do the roof right, and then the building official is notified and sends you a a, a bill a, a misdemeanor fee.
1: Usually accrued daily. By accrued the way, daily. daily. And sometimes
0: the policyholders also gets the same thing. Then that is a looming threat of punishment. There is a threat that you might get a ticket down the road. And so you could construe the word enforcement to mean so many different things. The carriers are going to construe it the way that
1: benefits them the most. And that's not appropriate. So one of the tricks that I want to make sure that you guys, it's not even a trick. Like it's literally knowing the code. So um, statute, the, uh, sorry, R104.1 is called modifications code. This is where if there's an impractical, solute, uh, uh, the code creates an impractical situation, then the building official can pr- uh, uh, give you give the contractor a modify modification to code but they have to provide that in writing so one of the things that i'm really trying to help contractors understand is that when you're given a scope from a carrier and you're understanding that that is going to be a violation of certain one two three five six codes whatever it is be thorough right figure out what that is what you're doing is you're packaging that together you're presenting it to the code official because they don't know a manufacturer records. You know, no. monitor, you know what is approved and, and specifically brought out by a manufacturer in these situations. So you bring this to them and say, here's my scope. It is going to be violating this section, this section, this manufacturer specification and, and installation requirement. I can I need a modification of code to do this, or you need to deny this. And that action has to be done in writing. So um, so really what you're looking at and, and this is where you are kind you, of pull this back you say
0: modification code you mean something like almost like a prescriptive method um or an alternative repair
1: kind of a deal are those would those do yep. the same thing so those are all specifically in that 103 104 section of code is talking about what happens if you run into these situations that are outside the specs what are the yeah. outside of of specifically what's inside of, in, in code and there's there's a section called modification. So this is where I, this is why I bring this up because there's a lot of people that go. But well, wait a second, if I try to pull a permit, and I know that it violates code, I'm going to ask them for a variance, or I'm going to ask them to deny deny my permit. So I'm going paying my 150 dollars whatever for a permit and asking them to deny it. To me, you're you're talking a different language. That's not that there's no prescription for that procedure within code. What is prescribed within code is saying, here is what I want to do, line item it through what the carrier is asking, what the adjuster is telling you, and say, this is going to violate these certain codes, but I, like I need a modification of code per 1041, which requires a judgment or you know the, yeah. the feedback from, it has to be in writing from the code official. That's enacted within the pages of the IRC. So when you're doing it that way, and now again, you're not going to have a code official anywhere that's going to say, oh, no, I don't care what the manufacturer says. You can do it that way. I agree with the, the adjuster is is right on the section. Right. So, again, this is how you enact and engage with a code that's official. Really, really. Um, you're asking for a modification of code, which is literally spelled out within the administration section
2: of code. I just what I've learned there's always it. exceptions to a, to a rule. You know, either there typically is. So I think that's what you're getting to, Mike, is that, hey, look, here's the code enforcement. Here's, you know, here's here's the rules, so to speak. Uh, but if there needs to be an exception for uh, specific circumstances, you ask for it and they'll say, you know, all right, well, you can do it this way. Like you said, get it in writing as well.
1: So I want to I I I address this one, too. Manufacturer requirements are also considered code. And that I'm going to say is actually not true. Requirement doesn't show up anywhere in code. Manufacturer, what is published or approved, is considered code. So we keep interjecting these words that aren't actually there and thinking that they are. It has nothing to do with whether it's required or not. It's actually more considered, is there an alternative or not? So if it's approved by the manufacturer or it's published by the manufacturer, then it's considered code. The the word requirement never shows up inside of the pages of the uh, IRC hmm. so if there's an alternative so let's use an alternative for example right say it's a 212 pitch right. can you put shingles on a 212 pitch yes but what you need to have ice 12, and water yeah. shield on the entire deck or double underlayment. through double the water so both. those are those are your two ways right. so now you now you've got leeway you can either go this right. way or that way but if there is no, like, if they say you don't need starter, right? Okay, well, show me because I've got all of this documentation where the manufacturer clearly states this is the instruction and this is the installation instruction. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to find something somewhere that says it's not, you don't have to, and you're not going to find it anymore. So it's published and approved are the words that are used inside a code. It requirement approved. never When they
0: talk about approved, the approved word, in, in the commentary is approved by the building officials,
1: which is interesting, not
0: approved That's by the it carrier. It, it actually... Oh, means- right, right, yeah. yeah. I want to make so- sure
1: that, yeah, that has nothing to do with the approved. Yeah. It's published or approved by the manufacturer. No, so it's actually approved in the commentary of the code.
0: i teach you some. <laughs> nice. yeah. In the commentary of the code, whenever it says approved, they mean by the building official. By the building official. So, and what they mean by that is if there is a variance, if there is some kind of a different prescribed method or something outside the norm from the manufacturer, then the, or a different kind of roofing, where you're using freaking license places something as shingles, then it would have to be something that is approved. You'd have to get your methodology approved, your instructions on how to install this have to be approved by the code by official. The code official. The manufacturers get these approved as a whole by the IRC anyway, so it would be approved by the code official if it's a manufacturer installation. Report.
1: Yeah, and your CCLI reports are the other ones that that talk to about published and approved. Yeah. so um those verbiage also show up in those contexts as well
0: yeah so is it considered part of code i think i think that's
1: yeah published and approved but again what what uh what i saw again that's 13 years as a manufacturer rep i kept hearing these requests i need JF to say it's required and i said no you don't it's not in code it doesn't well, code does not say that the the verbiage must reflect the it has to have a word required in it that's not in there at all not something that's made up
0: now the idea though is that you're supposed to follow whichever is stricter right so if the manufacturer installation requirements are stricter than what the code Correct. says then the manufacturer installation requirements
1: are what you're supposed to follow yeah for example that's a cricket behind a trimney right so right. the code is going to say 30 inches the right. manufacturer is going to say 24 inches or anything steeper than a 612 or in a northern state and then they draw the manufacturers for oh Oh yeah. yeah that's in the uh, profile guide oh my god <laughs> Or anything over an eight 6 six twelve. So if you're in Florida and you have a six twelve pitch or above, you still need a cricket.
2: Oh <laughs> see, I this didn't is, know that. Hey, so I have
1: is, left money on the table on many claims. This is uh this is BEI stuff. So can we say BEI is gonna be the place for all of this yeah. information? We're working on courses to fill all this up. BEI, and, by the
0: way, is the Building Experts Institute. It's a school that um I'm one of the owners of, and Mike is gonna be doing a Whole class, it'll be a very on long one. of this stuff and all the building code-related things. We've only got time for a few more questions. I wanted to get to this one because I get it a lot myself. And the question from Jared Belcher is: uh, If there's four to five roofs installed on the same decking, does the decking need to be replaced? Well, I don't know. That's the answer. The question. It stems from the idea, is it going to be a proper nailing surface anymore? If you're putting the same type of material onto the decking and you replace it with the same kind of material, then the nails are going to be roughly in the same place. You're going to have a whole bunch of perforations in the decking in roughly the same general area. How many roofs does it take before that decking is too weak to hold the shingles on and still meet the wind resistance requirements? And the answer is, I don't know. But I can tell you this. There hasn't been any actual real studies on it to be able to say. The only way to really know on a per-claim basis would be to do a pull test of the nails on site on that roof and compare that to what the pull test requirements are for a new roof. I have re-roofed a sheet of OSB for a class that I did at the National Claims Institute five times, and I did the same thing with plywood. And the nails in the OSB suddenly were coming out really easy when we did repairability tests, but on the plywood it was fine. So maybe it's different on the type of material it is and the thickness of it. But the nails, I could I could pull the
1: nails out by hand by the time I hit five roots. You think that was a uh, could that be in a like a delamination issue or something like that where the the. OSB or the CDX was actually weakened as well, or is that
0: That's literally what you're saying. saying? Yeah, so the OSB was weakened and so the nails weren't, they didn't have the grip force anymore. If if the wood structure around the nail is not very tight anymore because you hit roughly the same area with the nails over and over and over again, it's a problem, but it's, it's there's no research to point to.
1: So here's another Pandora's box. Are you talking fortified now? Because there's a lot of leak areas so fortified, was, right? Yeah. So here's the other Pandora's box that gets opened. Every single manufacturer has a disclaimer in their leak barriers that there can be a chemical reaction between dissimilar materials so if you put you know one manufacturer and then you put in your second layer because clearly you're not going to be able to pull that off i mean it it, that's the whole point of leak barriers it sticks to the decking. you can't pull it off without damaging the decking but code allows you an additional layer which means you can go two but not three right? right so if it's there but as soon as you put a second layer on depending on the manufacturer and they all have disclaimers if there's a chemical reaction that occurs between those that's not a manufacturing defect so now it's up to the liability of the contractor to say all right is that going to start leaking or not because there could be a chemical reaction and if you've ever seen this it just drips down the dripping the, black that's the dripping black stuff that's from a chemical reaction that's a between, chemical, the shingles. between dissimilar oh, leak shit. barriers yeah so now now you're back to the code issue because code requires you to put what? Compatible materials on the roof. So if you're just throwing a dart and saying, God, I hope this doesn't react with each other, that's, that's a liability issue for the contractor, not the homeowner or the carrier. So now with your fortified roof systems that have leak barrier literally everywhere on the seams of the plywood and all penetration and everything, now you've got <laughs> compatibility issues. That's on the shoulders of every single contractor that's putting a second layer of leak barrier on top of that existing. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. It's, that's amazing. It's a Pandora's box, though, because now that you're like, sense. oh, now what? I doing? mean, I,
0: we know about the metallurgy between different uh, types of metals reacting with each other. I, I had no idea the asphalt shingles would act differently. It's not the, the shingles, shingles. It's a leak
1: barrier. does it, the, the leak. The leak so barrier it's the ice itself water will is turn the... to goop and just oh, start okay. dripping down the front of it. So it's yeah. one leak beer on top of the other and the one turns to liquid and just starts running off the roof
0: here you're, you're right yeah okay it ends up in and it stains gutters and does all kinds of crap and everybody talks about what the hell is this Yep. I, i've even had people say that it was a problem with the manufacturer but no that makes a hell of a lot more sense oh yeah is it because of the different so SPS here's gas
1: type stuff that's in them or or what is the SPS? okay so it could be any number of things so if you look at the tech bulletins behind grace for example grace is kind of like that's the Cadillac of them they have more disclaimers for just the roof the the wood species can't put it on this 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 because it causes it to turn into yeah liquid it liquefies it now that's what, so that's one of them that's very picky when you start putting like a GAF or a CertainTeed on top of it. Right. Now, CertainTeed had a bunch of issues. I, The first time I noticed it was CertainTeed made it very clear in their Shingle Master booklet that if you're starting to mix their leak barrier with somebody else's, that is not a manufacturing defect, and there is no coverage for the chemical reaction that would occur. Then GAF came out with it. Now, OC has been a little bit more tricky about it. They just say, if you look at the installation instructions on their leak barrier, it says it has to be done on a clean deck nowhere does OC ever mention anything about putting or installing their leak barrier on top of leak barrier. And I think that's the reason that's, that's their because If it turns into into goop because it's reacting with what's existing and it starts running down the fascia, they're like, wait a second, our installation clearly states you have to install this on a clean deck. That's crazy. Every other manufacturer specifically notes the leaching and the leaking that can happen from dissimilar materials with their leak barriers. But but the code allows you to leave the
0: barrier behind if if it starts tearing the decking up when you're removing it. The only layer that
1: you're allowed to leave behind when
0: you're bound to the
1: deck. Code specifically says if you cannot remove that layer without damaging the decking, you may apply an additional layer. That's how it's stated in code. But it doesn't necessarily say
2: But they don't know be dissimilar.
1: Yeah, but it still says it has to be compatible, but nobody knows. Right. Now, I've got a contractor in uh, Minnesota on the back, on the south side of their building. They put like 20 different, you know, compatibility. So, they put one on top of one, one on the other, and they use like eight different kinds. Guess how many of them are leaking within five years? they literally dripping down the face because they did all these. They have have different samples. They have about 20 different samples from all different combinations of leak barriers. About half of them. Half of them are already dripping because you put one company on top of another and it adds them. That's great. See, that great. see how much fun we can have when we're together.
2: <laughs> Learning wow. some stuff. Here's here's my advice for the day. Ask the code enforcement officer to come out and take a look. Yeah. Give his own opinion in writing. Yeah, that's my uh, that's my little tidbit of the day.
1: Yeah. And, it, and it, that if you see inside of the WhatsApp roofing code, that is really the spirit of that Facebook group. You will see me come on and say, "This is a great time to engage the code official because you want you know what every code official that I've ever worked with appreciate that relationship because again they're not reading those the Bible of of roofing that comes from the GAF and the Certi and the OC. Like you can literally help them understand roofing assemblies." They like that. And so you can create friends very, very quickly, but engaging a code official is A1 on my list of what a a roofing contractor could be doing on a daily basis today.
0: I learned a lot of stuff in this conversation. Um, I hope people watch this before we let you go, I want to talk to you a little bit about our sponsors and I've got a quick video for you to see about Ink Payments.
2: Accessing your insurance proceeds after a property claim is approved should be fast and easy. Who has time to run around for check endorsements, fill out confusing paperwork, or stay in regular contact with the mortgage company to ensure timely disbursements? That's why there's Ink Payments. Inc payments allows you to digitally endorse multi-party checks and direct funds to restoration professionals in seconds. Just snap a picture of the check, upload it to Inc, provide a few details, and we'll take care of the rest Inc. It's
0: freaking cool. I'm (laughs) geeking out about weird shit over here. Uh, That's Inc payments. They are uh, one of our sponsors. We're actually going to have Ken Lawler from Inc on a show very, very soon where we're actually going to start talking about some potential issues that they've had complaints about and what's actually going on behind the scenes so we can see what's going on in there. Uh, Because Inc. is on top of their ship. Uh, Claim Titan is a PA software for, or PA, CRM, a CRM for PAs. If you guys are dealing with claims as a public adjuster, you need a good system that is able to track all your stuff. If you're not using a system at all, what is wrong with you? You have to keep on top of that shit. You even have to keep records for a certain amount of time. Building Experts Institute is the school that Mike is going to be talking about building codes at. You can see why he's the guy we're getting involved for that. He's the expert. So at Building Experts Institute, you can get in there for $109 a month. And we have exact certification training part of that same membership. You can't get it that price anywhere else. Exectimate level one, two, and three. By the end of this month, we'll all be there. Uh, Hook Agency for Roofing Contractors is about the best marketing agency or marketing firm you can get. They're so good, they convinced me to get a tattoo at our roofing convention. American Police Association is an association that is uh, defeating insurer fraud, meaning insurance fraud committed by insurance carriers. So they are investigating and prosecuting against those. Uh, There has been a lot of talk about people saying that there's not a lot going on. I can promise you, behind the scenes, talking about accusing someone of fraud, you have to be right. There is a lot of investigating still going on. There is a lot of work happening. So bear in mind, there's a lot that you don't see. American Policy Association is doing a ton. And then there's the Huggins Law Firm, probably the best law firm on the planet. Definitely the best for Georgia and Florida.
2: Hey uh, Matt, we're we're fighting some ONL uh, issues right now in um, Georgia and Florida, and I want to circle back on this topic. And hopefully, six months from now, I'll have some uh, conclusions or or case law, you know, to to those uh, fights. But um, I want to say this: if if Mike and Matt are doing a class at Building Experts Institute, I don't care, contractor, public adjuster, attorney. You need to check it out. Um, I just I sat down with Matt just a couple months ago. All we talked about was O and literally applied it to one of my cases the next day and got it paid. So, uh, and hey, as you can see, Mike's got a wealth of knowledge. Fee? Yep. So I- I'm being honest. <laughs> hey, if you're a contractor, a public adjuster, uh, an IA, an attorney, whatever it might be, get in on that class. You're going to learn something, and it's going to help you out. It's an investment.
0: Awesome. And one last thing for listen to this bull. We do a webinar once a month coming up this Friday is the cut through the BS defeating bad hail and wind claim denials. It's eight hour class on zoom. It's only 650 bucks. You guys need to take a look at that. It is on uh, my Facebook page. So look up my name, Matthew. So we'll only one to see Matthew. Mullen. Take a look at that uh, this Friday. It will help you win the claims. That's it. We will see you next Tuesday. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See ya. You are wearing a ridiculous thing.